and welcome to Gone But Not Forgotten, the podcast all about remembering the lives and careers of stars who left us too soon. I'm Audrey Cornell, and today I'm going to be talking about the singer-slash-actress Whitney Houston. Whitney Elizabeth Houston was born on August 9, 1963, in Newark, New Jersey, to Sissy and John Russell Houston. She was the youngest child with two brothers, Gary and Michael. Whitney's family was greatly influenced by music, as her mother was an award-winning singer who sang backup for the likes of Aretha Franklin and Elvis Presley, who was part of a group with her sisters called the Sweet Inspirations. Whitney's first cousins were singers Dion and Dee Dee Warwick, and all of her family members' connections allowed her to meet and learn from some of the greatest Black singers of the 20th century from a very young age. Whitney was raised in the Baptist church and loved gospel music. She sang in the church choir throughout her child and teen years while Sissy coached her. 14-year-old Whitney even sang backup on several of Sissy's tracks for her solo album, Think It Over. Around this time was when she was first exposed to drugs by her brother Michael, who gave her cocaine for her birthday. She and her best friend Robin Crawford would experiment with substances throughout their teenage years. A large portion of Whitney's legacy is her struggle with addiction, while that was definitely part of her life, I don't want to comment too much on it because she was more than that. Accounts vary on what her reasoning behind taking drugs was, whether it be suffering sexual abuse from a relative, having to hide her sexuality, the pressures she felt from her mother to perform. Yet Whitney never discussed nor confirmed any of this publicly, and therefore I want to respect her privacy. Whitney's parents separated when she was 15, but they continued to support her. She struggled with them not being together as well as her time spent at an all-girls high school. In the 1987 interview with Time magazine, she said that, Some of the girls had problems with me. My face was too light. My hair was too long. It was a black consciousness period, and I felt really bad. I finally faced the fact that it isn't a crime not having friends. Being alone means you have fewer problems. When I decided to become a singer, my mother warned me I'd be alone a lot. Basically, we all are. Loneliness comes with life. After she graduated in 1981, Whitney started singing in clubs throughout New York City and was signed as a model, even appearing on the cover of Seventeen magazine. In 1983, Clive Davis, the head of Arista Records, saw Whitney performing at a club in Manhattan with her mother and immediately offered her a record deal. Since Whitney was only 19, her parents had to sign the contract, and Whitney began working on her debut album. Davis later said that shortly after he'd signed Whitney, he was able to get her onto the Merv Griffin show, where he told the host, If the mantle is to pass to somebody who's 19, who's elegant, who's sensuous, who's innocent, who's got an incredible range of talent, but guts and soul at the same time, it will be Whitney Houston, in my opinion. And her poise doesn't hurt, uh, but it's her natural charm. I mean, it, you, you either got it or you don't have it. She's got it. She got it. Whitney sang a rendition of Home from the musical The Wiz.
Her first album, which was self-titled, released in 1985 and was heartily praised by critics. Clive Davis aimed to hire songwriters who would craft the perfect songs for Whitney's voice and help her burst onto the scene. She was always a professional when recording and producing her albums and would nail the songs in one take. Whitney continued to tour around nightclubs and was an opening act for singer Jeffrey Osborne's U.S. tour. She also performed on television and her videos aired on BET and VH1 stations. Unfortunately, MTV, which was extremely popular at this point in time, would not air her videos because they claimed the songs were too R&B. In reality, the channel was currently being heavily criticized for its purposeful exclusion of performers who are not white. But Whitney was finally given screen time when her songs Saving All My Love and How Will I Know became such big hits that MTV was practically forced to air the videos. She became involved with comedian Eddie Murphy in the late 80s. Clive Davis claimed in his memoir that they were together until Whitney married Bobby Brown in 1992. Whitney's friend Robin Crawford also claimed that Murphy called Whitney on her wedding day to stop her from getting married, but both Whitney and Murphy denied ever being a couple. Whitney's relationships were constantly under speculation during the 80s and 90s before she married Bobby Brown. Interviewers frequently asked her if she was gay, to which Whitney denied. Several years after Whitney's death, Robin Crawford wrote a book in which she detailed her relationship with Whitney, saying that the two had been lovers when they were teenagers. Rumors spread when Crawford became Whitney's assistant and the two moved into an apartment together. While Whitney never confirmed that they were ever in a relationship, she was always a supporter of the LGBTQ community and remains a queer icon to this day. In 1986, Whitney's debut album stayed at number one on the Billboard Top 200 charts for 14 weeks, and she became the first woman to reach three number one hits, with Saving All My Love For You, The Greatest Love Of All, and How Will I Know. She won Grammys, American Music Awards, and an MTV Music Award throughout 1986 and 87, opening doors for female Black artists to join the mainstream. When it came out, I, I, I didn't expect it to be um, as popular. I didn't know that it would be one of the best-selling debut albums of all time. And none of that you could have told me, and I would have said, yeah, yeah, right, whatever, you know. But I was very pleased, and I was, I think, a little overwhelmed that I was accepted and that it became what it, it became. And I'm very thankful to, to this day to everyone. Thank you for that. <laughs> In 1987, Whitney's second album, simply titled Whitney, was not met with the same praise that her first was. Critics said it was too similar and that Whitney wasn't taking enough risks with her extremely versatile voice. However, the first single, I Want to Dance with Somebody Who Loves Me, was a smash hit and remains one of Whitney's most iconic songs to date. Her next three singles also reached number one on the charts, and she became the first woman to have four number one singles from the same album. Unfortunately, her immense success with relatively poppy hits and appeal to white audiences caused Black audiences and singers to claim that Whitney was selling herself out. At the 1989 Soul Train Awards, Whitney was booed by audience members when her name was called for a nomination. Whitney defended herself, saying, If you're going to have a long career, there's a certain way to do it, and I did it that way. I'm not ashamed of it. From a young age, her mother had instilled lessons in her to always be a lady, and her record company aimed to promote her as America's sweetheart, which ostracized her for many of her peers. At the Soul Train Awards ceremony was where she met singer Bobby Brown, and the two started dating. 
Whitney was also an activist, performing at venues to raise money for causes. She formed the Whitney Houston Foundation for Children in 1989, which still runs to this day, in helping children fighting cancer, AIDS, or homelessness. Whitney's next album, 1990's I'm Your Baby Tonight, showed her taking more risks with the styles of her songs and preferring ballads over upbeat songs. Critics were mixed, some saying they liked that her style had shifted while others thought it was superficial. Around this time, one of Whitney's most iconic performances occurred, her rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner for the 1991 Super Bowl. It's largely thought to be one of the greatest live performances of all time. Whitney and Bobby Brown married on July 18, 1992. Their relationship had been tumultuous from the start, with Brown getting arrested several times for drunk driving and possession of drugs. In later years, Whitney admitted that their marriage had been difficult because he had been jealous of her, and she felt she needed to tear herself down to keep their relationship stable. She stood by him even when he had several affairs throughout their marriage. Things were even more difficult because Brown felt competitive with Whitney's best friend, Robin, and they would often fight, sometimes physically, over what they thought was best for Whitney. Her bodyguard, David Roberts, said that, Robin and Whitney were like twins. They were inseparable, and everybody knew the power that Robin had. They had a bond, and Bobby Brown could never remove Robin from the relationship. That was part of his frustration because he wanted Whitney Houston to love him as a man of the relationship. He wanted Whitney to remove Robin from their relationship, and Whitney didn't want to do it. She was offered the lead in 1992's The Bodyguard alongside Kevin Costner. This would be her debut film, even though she had previously turned down opportunities to work with people like Robert De Niro and Spike Lee. Costner had lobbied for Whitney to play the role of Rachel Marin, a famous singer who needs a bodyguard after she starts receiving death threats from a crazed fan. Screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan had been working on the script for decades, originally wanting Steve McQueen and Diana Ross to play the leads. Kasdan said, I was interested in what kind of a guy would do that kind of work, to be willing to lay down his life for a salary for someone he may care nothing about, maybe even have negative feelings about. The movie fell through and went several years until Costner and Kasdan worked together on Silverado and decided to do the film together. Whitney was extremely nervous to be acting, but Costner and director Mick Jackson helped her find confidence in herself, and she became very close with everyone working on the film. Devon Nixon, who played Whitney's character's son, came to view Whitney as a mother figure, since his own mother wasn't able to come to the set while he was filming. Whitney was expecting a child of her own, but suffered a miscarriage and was unable to work for a few weeks. The film ended up being the seventh highest-grossing film of 1992 in the soundtrack which Whitney co-produced, has sold over 45 million copies worldwide. It's the best-selling soundtrack album of all time and the best-selling album by a woman in music history. It won a Grammy for Album of the Year in 1993, but unfortunately, The Bodyguard was quite popular at the Razzie Awards, receiving a total of seven nominations, including Worst Actress for Whitney. Despite that, audience reviews were very positive and Whitney's performance propelled her even farther into stardom. I don't really need to look very much further. 
Whitney later said her marriage grew even more strained after the film became so popular, and Bobby Brown started lashing out more than ever before. In 2009, Whitney told Oprah Winfrey that, I think somewhere inside, something happens to a man when a woman has that much control. Whitney's bodyguard, David Roberts, said that Bobby lost his own identity, which I suspect he resented deeply, especially as his own talents were inferior to Miss Houston's. He added that, whatever he did, Whitney would do the same to make him feel comfortable in an environment where he was otherwise totally out of his depth. The couple welcomed their only child, Bobby Christina, on March 4, 1993. Whitney went on the Bodyguard World Tour during 1993 and 1994, where she was now the third highest earning female entertainer, behind Oprah Winfrey and Barbara Streisand. At the 1994 American Music Awards, she delivered one of her greatest performances, a 10-minute medley of the songs, I Loves You, Porgy, and I'm Telling You I'm Not Going, I Have Nothing. She began working on her next film, Waiting to Exhale, about a group of four black women who are struggling with the relationships in their lives. Whitney said she wanted to be part of the movie because it was a breakthrough for the image of black women because it presents them both as professionals and as caring mothers. Music producer Babyface wanted Whitney to sing the entire soundtrack, but she campaigned for it to be made up of black artists that she admired, including Mary J. Blige, Brandy, and Aretha Franklin. The film grossed $81 million worldwide, over $160 million today, and Whitney was nominated for an NAACP Image Award for Best Actress, although she lost to her co-star, Angela Bassett. The movie helped redefine Whitney's capabilities as an actor and was influential in its realistic portrayals of black women. I mean, so what do you think, Bobby? I've loved this man forever, and now that we've got another chance... I don't want to look by making him think I don't have any faith in him. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, don't we hear this on Sally and Oprah every day? <laughs> That's what you sound like, yeah, you know? know. <laughs> Is that where you get your advice from the TV? Unfortunately, Whitney overdosed on cocaine during filming, and her bodyguard, David Roberts, felt he had to intervene. He wrote a letter to Whitney's lawyers telling them who was responsible for smuggling drugs to Whitney and that he was concerned for her health and singing abilities, which the drugs were significantly altering. The next thing Roberts knew, he was fired and never spoke to Whitney again. Her next project was the 1996 film The Preacher's Wife, a remake of The Bishop's Wife, starring Cary Grant and Loretta Young. 
She played a choir singer whose marriage is helped by an angel played by Denzel Washington. Whitney's salary of $10 million for the film made her the highest paid black actress in Hollywood. Denzel Washington produced the movie under his company, Mundy Lane Entertainment, which had a goal of hiring as many black cast and crew members as possible for its films. He said, we do it because they're capable and because nobody else is necessarily looking out for them. Director Penny Marshall wrote in her memoir that she originally wanted Washington to play the part of the preacher, but he wanted to play Dudley the Angel and offered the suggestion that Whitney play Julia, the preacher's wife. Whitney was eager to work on the film because of the opportunity to sing gospel songs, bringing her back to her roots. Some of the scenes were filmed in Newark, New Jersey, the town where she had grown up. The soundtrack later became the most sold gospel album in Billboard charts history. Penny Marshall said that Whitney was never a problem on set and always delivered her best, never visibly under the influence of drugs during shooting. Marshall got her and Whitney's mutual friend, Rosie O'Donnell, to host Saturday Night Live, and Whitney was the musical guest to promote the film. She even appeared in one of the sketches and got to show off her comedic chops. For The Preacher's Wife, Whitney received the most positive reviews so far in her acting career. The San Francisco Chronicle wrote that Whitney is rather angelic herself, displaying a divine talent, and exudes gentle yet spirited warmth, especially when praising the Lord in her gorgeous singing voice. She won an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Actress. Whitney's production company, Roundhouse Productions, began working on a new version of Cinderella with a goal to show aspects of the lives of African Americans that had not been brought to the screen before. Whitney was offered the titular role in the early 90s, but turned it down due to several other scheduled projects. When the movie finally got made in 1997, she played the small part of the fairy godmother and Brandy was cast as the lead. About 60 million viewers tuned in to watch the TV special, making it the highest-rated program on ABC in over 10 years. It received seven Emmy nominations and one for Outstanding Art Direction. Whitney then wanted to play old Hollywood icon Dorothy Dandridge in a biopic, but Halle Berry also had the rights to Dandridge's story and got her film made first. Whitney started working on her first studio album in eight years, 1998's My Love Is Your Love. On it, Whitney sang songs and styles from hip-hop to reggae to soulful ballads. The album did incredibly well, debuting at number 13 on the Billboard 200 chart, sold millions of copies, and won Whitney her sixth Grammy. The Village Voice wrote that the album was Whitney's sharpest and most satisfying so far. In 1999, she embarked on a tour across the world and performed on VH1's Divas Live, alongside singers like Brandy, Tina Turner, and Cher. Personal issues arose during the late 90s and early 2000s, as Whitney's behaviors became extremely erratic and she didn't maintain the professionality that she had in years past. She showed up late to interviews, missed performances, and didn't make it to her longtime producer Clive Davis's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where she was supposed to perform. She was fired from performing at the 2000 Academy Awards, where she was intended to sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Whitney's best friend and assistant, Robin Crawford, quit after citing that Whitney was refusing to get help for her drug addiction. Some people in Whitney's circle believe that Crawford had been paid off by Whitney's family, who had grown tired of having her around and felt she was getting in the way of Whitney and Bobby's marriage. Whitney spiraled after Crawford left and began to depend more and more on drugs. 
In 2001, she signed a deal with Aretha Records to release six albums for a salary of $100 million, plus royalties. After 9-11 occurred, she decided to donate profits from her singles to the New York Firefighters 9-11 Disaster Relief Fund. She produced the 2001 film The Princess Diaries, starring Anne Hathaway in her film debut alongside Julie Andrews. Whitney was responsible for putting together the soundtrack of the film, which featured artists like Aaron Carter, The Backstreet Boys, and Hanson, who all wrote tracks specifically for the movie. As a producer, Whitney was responsible for the entire process of creating the film and was often present on set. In 2002, her infamous interview with Diane Sawyer aired, in which she was grilled on her marriage to Bobby Brown as well as her drug addiction. Whitney admitted to abusing several substances, but denied that Brown was ever physically violent towards her. In 2003, he was charged with battery for beating Whitney after she called the police who said that they found her with several bruises and cuts on her face. The interview Whitney did with Diane Sawyer perfectly encapsulates the public's fascination with celebrities in relation to drugs. Instead of having a meaningful and sympathetic conversation about Whitney's struggles, she was judged and mocked for her behaviors. Whitney unfortunately became famous during the time of tabloids and gossipy talk shows, and her substance abuse was constantly under question. Most of the media about her at this time wasn't even about her music, but her personal life. In 2002, Whitney's ex-album, Just Whitney, debuted at number 9 on the Billboard charts, which was the highest any of her albums had reached in the first week. Unfortunately, it wasn't as much of a critical success as her other works. 2003 saw the release of a Christmas album, which was certified gold in the United States, and marked Whitney's daughter Bobby Christina's debut on the track Little Drummer Boy. She also produced the 2003 Disney Channel original movie The Cheetah Girls and helped produce the soundtrack album. Later, she produced the sequels to The Princess Diaries and The Cheetah Girls. Whitney toured throughout most of 2004 and announced plans to work on a new album with producer Clive Davis. 2005 brought a reality show focusing on Bobby Brown, but Whitney appeared in all of the episodes. The show revealed elements of their lives that The Guardian later claimed caused Whitney to lose the last remnants of her dignity. Ratings were incredibly high, though most likely because viewers wanted to witness the salacious quality of the singer's lives. On the show, Whitney's catchphrase became held to the no, and she was nominated for VH1's Quote of the Year Award. She declined to appear in a second season, causing the show to completely disintegrate. Did you all watch the show? Sure. Yeah. And what did you think? I didn't know quite what to think. I knew I was trying to be Miss Bobby Brown. That's what I was trying to do without overshadowing the whole situation, which was difficult. So you did that for him? Yeah. I did. I did it for him. I did it with him. How could you not do a reality show and I'm your wife and not have me in it? But there were many critics of it, and I think one of them uh, called it a train wreck. Well, like was like watching a train wreck. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's madness. Mm. Do you think it highlighted sort of the dysfunction between you and the dysfunction <laughs> yeah, in the family? I, I do. Yeah? I sure do. <laughs> yeah. 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 A lot of people... I think after seeing you on that show, started to really worry about you uh -huh. and what was really going on with you. What was going on with you at that time? 
There were a few things. Were you happy? No. Were you happy with him? Were you happy with the relationship? I wasn't happy with the marriage. Weren't happy with the marriage. Were you happy with yourself? I was losing me into that. Into the marriage? Yeah, by trying to be pleasing. Were you also trying to, because the world had said it wouldn't last six minutes, were you also trying to prove the world wrong? I was wrong? determined. Mm. Determined to prove them wrong. So determined. And after a while, you start to lose what the real concept is of the love. Mm -hmm. And you want to make a statement. You know? Wow. And, yeah. And I was trying to make a statement. You guys aren't going to win. She's not going to do that. We got married. We were in love. We were crazy for each other. We wanted to have a family. And I'm just not going to let you do that to us. In 2005, Whitney checked into rehab, her family and friends saying she was trying to get clean. She took Bobby Christina to live with her brother Gary when things between her and Bobby became even more tumultuous. Whitney filed for divorce in 2006, which was finalized in 2007. She received full custody of Bobby Christina. I just knew I, I had to get to a point where I had to make a choice. Mm -hmm. And I just remember praying, if you give me one day of strength, I will go out that door and I will not look back. And that one day came and I left. I remember I said, I'm going out for some sugar and some milk and I'll be back. Did you know that that was the day? I, I knew it. You knew it. I never, came, I never came back. Wow. I never came back and I went to LA. But next time he heard, I was in Los Angeles. I left. In 2007, Whitney was revealed to be suffering from severe debt, only having about $40,000 in her bank account. She owed millions on houses that she owned in New Jersey and Georgia that she couldn't pay off. Back in 2002, her own father sued her for $100 million for not paying him for helping secure her the multi-million dollar deal she had made with Arista. He died a year later before anything could come of it and the case was dismissed, but Whitney was heartbroken. In 2008, her father's widow, Barbara, sued Whitney, claiming that she hadn't paid off her father's mortgage with the $1 million she had inherited after his death. Whitney countersued with documents proving that she had supported her father throughout the 90s, claiming that the money was a way to pay her back for the cash she had loaned her father. The lawsuits were dismissed, Barbara filed an appeal, and Whitney ended up winning the case and keeping the money. In 2009, she made her big comeback on The Oprah Winfrey Show and released her final album, I Look to You. She seemed to be maintaining her sobriety, and her record brought her her best opening sales ever. The NAACP nominated her for Best Female Artist and Best Music Video, awarding her for the latter for the single, I Look to You. She went on a tour, but the reviews were middling, and she canceled several dates, citing illness. A performance in Brisbane, Australia brought particularly poor reactions from the audience. One woman saying that Whitney can't sing, couldn't perform, and was the worst act we've ever seen. Whitney was often criticized in the last few years of her life for not having the voice and vitality that she had decades before because of her struggles with addiction causing her both health and vocal problems. Audience members frequently laughed during the middle of a show. Yet several critics defended Whitney, claiming she still had it, especially considering everything she had been through. 
Friends and family stated that Whitney was devastated after how poorly the tour went and her disappointment at losing the strength her voice had once had. In 2011, she went back to rehab and later announced her involvement as actor and producer in the film Sparkle, a remake of the 1976 film about the issues a girl group faces during the 1950s because of their race. Whitney appeared to be struggling throughout the first month of 2012, relapsing back into her old habits. On February 9th, she went to the Beverly Hilton Hotel to spend time with singers Brandy and Monica, as well as her producer Clive Davis, for a pre-Grammy Awards party. She was found in her hotel room bathtub two days later, her death a result of several drugs found in her system, as well as a heart disease that she had been suffering with. The pre-Grammys party that Whitney was set to attend still happened on February 11th, the day that Whitney had passed. Several of Whitney's friends thought it was disrespectful to her, as the investigation into her death within the hotel was still occurring. Garrett Kennedy, author of a 2022 Whitney Houston biography, said, I've never gotten over the fact that this party happened. She's upstairs, and the coroner is waiting to go up there and get her. It's appalling to me. I feel like this weird Shakespearean tragedy unfolding where it's like, this woman who was granted so little dignity in her lifetime can't even die in dignity. Bobby Brown performed a concert in Mississippi hours after Whitney was pronounced dead, taking a moment to pay tribute to his ex-wife. The Grammys honored Whitney with a tribute from Jennifer Hudson, who sang, I will always love you. Whitney's funeral was held on February 18, 2012, in Newark, New Jersey. She was buried beside her father the next day. After her death, sales of Whitney's records went through the roof and several songs landed back on the chart. Sparkle was released posthumously in August of 2012. One of the film's producers, Deborah Martin Chase, said, On the one hand, I'm so excited about the movie and we're really happy with how it turned out. But with this being Whitney's last performance, it's hard. It's hard. Wow. Should I feel discouraged? And uh, why should the shadows, shadows come? But why, why, why should my heart? The film received mostly positive reviews, especially praising stars Jordan Sparks and Carmen Ajogo. The soundtrack album hit spots on several prominent charts, including number one on the Billboard Soundtracks chart. Whitney Houston remains one of the most awarded singers of all time and a lasting icon to singers and music lovers alike. She was also heavily involved in activism and helping raise money for charities that push for important causes. When AIDS had reached the peak of its severity in the 1990s, Whitney was one of the only celebrities using her fame and fortune to fight the disease and support those suffering from it. She used her status to help push other Black female artists into the spotlight and acted as a mentor for several singers, just as Aretha Franklin and her mother had done for her. Whitney Houston was known for her catchphrase, Can I be me? She tried her best to be her true self in a world and industry that was actively fighting against her. 
while her legacy today seems to focus on the more unsavory aspects of her life, when you should be remembered for her kindness and bravery. She was a devoted mother, wife, and friend. And most importantly, she was the voice. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gone But Not For Gone podcast. Make sure to join me and my co-host Louise next week, where we'll be talking about Whitney Houston's five films, the legacy she left behind, and her music. Follow me on Instagram at flick.loving.chis. See you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Gone But Not Forgotten podcast. This episode was researched, written, edited by me, Audrey Cornell. The music was written by Nia D'Amelio. Gone But Not Forgotten is a part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com.